Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest Empire Podcast Spoiler Special. This one is dedicated to Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, who are you going to call? Who are you going to pod? Who are you going to pod with? I'll tell you who I'm going to pod with. I'm going to pod with my three munchers of such lethal cunning. Mm. No? No. My three colleagues of such lethal munching. Uh, I uh. think that's worse. There's a lot of munching in this movie. Way more than I thought there was going to be in a 12, I'll be honest with you. But, but you know, I haven't seen this much munching in a mainstream movie since Geely. <laughs> gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble. Turkey time, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Happy days. Happy days. Anyway, joining me to discuss this movie uh, in all its ghostly glory are my three colleagues of such lethal munching. Helen O'Hara. Hello. Ben Travis. Hello. And Ghostbusters, renowned Ghostbusters 2 expert, Nick Dissemlian. I only know anything about the second one. Yeah, hi, Chris. I'm here in my new capacity as uh, employee of the EPA, just to keep an eye on things. <laughs> I've been hearing that you've been breaking all kinds of, uh, of, of laws and rules and bylines, by, by laws. So I'm going to be keeping an eye and I will shut this podcast down if I see anything. Wow. That it's is. true. This man has no dick. I kind of asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> you, you, walked in, you walked into that one, Nick. I'll be honest. <laughs> He's gone full Walter Peck. You should have grown a beard for it, a lovely beard. I should have. I should have. If I had yeah. committed that much to this. Yeah. This there are so joke. many things we should have done in regards to this podcast, but anyway, we're, we're going to bull on. Uh, we have all seen the film, right? I just want to double check that none of us are here and we're, you know, we're not. <laughs> I have seen Ghostbusters too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. We're not laboring under false pretenses. Uh, all right. Excellent stuff. So we'll be talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife, but first you're going to hear an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with the man who wrote or co-wrote and directed it. Jason Reitman, son, of course, of Ivan Reitman, the man who co-created Ghostbusters, essentially with Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis all those years ago, back in 1994, directed the first Ghostbusters and, of course, the second Ghostbusters back in 1989, the one that Nick loves more than life itself. <laughs> it's true. So aptly for a movie about someone taking over the family business, that is exactly what Jason Reitman has done with this movie. He has taken over the family business, and I spoke to him about that and about a great many things, including, of course, the, the ending. Do please enjoy. Uh, press and record. Can I just go a quick level for you, Jason? So hey, this is Jason Reitman. Uh, give you a big introduction. And then we, we, I can't we wait go. for this. Oh my! Uh, I say a big introduction. I literally just say your name. I literally just say your name. It'd be great if my introduction could just be my father's credits. You know his father's movies: Animal House, Meatball Stripes, Twins, Kindergarten Cop. Oh, you can't leave out Legal Eagles. Come on, Legal man. Eagles. You cannot leave out Legal Eagles. Um, he also had a kid at Dave. some point. Yeah, his yeah. child never finished college. <laughs> Was a mediocre student in general. This is so much Horrible a, a better manners. intro than I was just going to literally say. Ladies and say, gentlemen. Lady, will you please welcome, put your hands together at home or in the car, wherever you are, and applaud Jason Wright. <laughs> Middling independent filmmaker <laughs> and now Ghostbusters director. Jason Reitman. How are you, sir? Are you good? I'm doing great. It's you know a pleasure what? to be here. I'm taking that as the intro. That, that That's is, it. That is the intro. <laughs> it is so much better than what I had in mind. Uh, Jason, so this is a spoiler special podcast, so we can get into everything. There's a lot to talk about in this movie, but I right. always like to start these things with the big question that's in everybody's lips after they've seen Ghostbusters Afterlife. Cujo and Child's Play. <laughs> talk us through that. Uh, Cujo was written... 
directly into the script, and uh, the Beethoven reference is actually an Easter egg of sorts because my father is the producer of the <laughs> Beethoven movies. I it's one of my first jobs as a teenager was a production assistant on Beethoven Second, which is the sequel, of course. Yes, and so there's a Beethoven joke. Uh, based on Cujo in the movie. <laughs> and then Child's Play, we wanted to make it a runner. And I love Child's Play. Like, as, as, mm. a, as a kid, I loved that that film. So I was thrilled when we got that in there. Because we had, of course, we had to get the rights. And it was, you know, yes. this is a Sony film. That was a universal title. But yeah, you know, we got it in there. Were you looking for those films in terms of foreshadowing? Obviously, Cujo has a terror dog at its heart. So was that on your mind? Oh, my God. I wish I could say that that was on purpose. I really just wanted to make the Beethoven joke. <laughs> there was no no terror dog thought. I mean, in the future, of course. Yeah. You will say that that oh, was your it's, thinking. It's part of my overwhelming genius. Yeah. But uh, no, the uh, no, 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 I no. didn't think of that. OK, so I'm overthinking it. It's basically <laughs> no, you're supposed to think it, but honestly, that's why we love movies, right? Is like yeah. we go back. I mean, it's like that shining documentary. Like we go back and we 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 import all these ideas upon them because because oh the, the movies are just mirrors, right? They're just yeah. mirroring us. Oh my god, I've I've totally ruined two three seven your movie. This is this is dangerous. We could we could disappear down a big old deep dark rabbit yeah, hole yeah, with yeah. Ghostbusters you fire hauled number eight my uh, my movie. <laughs> so. Whenever I saw Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters was one of my gateway drugs into horror. The arms punching through the chair to get to grab Sigourney um, is something that's still lodged in my brain. It's something you you riff on here. You know what's interesting about you bringing this up? Mm -hmm. Can I? Sorry, can I just interrupt your question? Of course you can. Yeah, because I'm I'm probably going nowhere. Oh, so. perfect. Uh, I literally am coming from lunch with my father okay. into this interview, and we spent lunch talking about David Cronenberg because my father produced. Cronenberg's first couple films. He mm -hmm. produced Shivers. He produced Rabid. And we had a whole conversation actually about learning how to make horror on the set with David Cronenberg, which he did before my father ever produced Animal House or directed Meatballs or Stripes or Ghostbusters. And one of my father's first approaches on Ghostbusters was, I want to take the horror seriously. Yep. That usually if you have a comedy about ghosts, it's going to be a bunch of goofing around. They're not going to treat the ghosts seriously. They're not going to either treat them tonally seriously, and they're not going to treat them treat them seriously from a level of craft. Yeah. And one of the most amazing things about Ghostbusters is the artistry that went into the animatronics and the puppetry, uh, the 65 millimeter cloud tank footage they did <laughs> just for the cloud work above Dana's apartment building. Yeah. And here's a good anecdote. Uh, Three years ago, I'm at the Directors Guild, sitting next to Steven Spielberg, because I'm fancy, apparently, and <laughs> I did not deserve to be at that table. <laughs> Come on. And Steven, Mr. Spielberg, asks me, what are you working on these days? And I said, I'm directing the next Ghostbusters. And without pause, he goes, library ghost, top 10 scares of all time. Yep. This is from the director of Jaws. Yep. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but totally agree with you. No, you're, you're, you're totally right. And it, it was my, one of my educations in horror. I was watching horror films way too young, uh, obviously, but it, it really helped and it lodged in my brain. And one of the great things about Afterlife is you're absolutely right. It takes the scares seriously. And you start off right from the beginning with that really intense sequence with, with Egon being yeah. pursued by, I presume the spirit of Gozer is 
is what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I um, I'm really appreciative that you said that because, uh, of course, I have no experience making films like this. I had much less experience making anything science fiction or horror based mm-hmm. uh, than my father did when he went into making the first Ghostbusters. But we wanted to make the action legit. We wanted the scares to be real. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a conversation with Eli Roth at one point, and I was like, I have no <laughs> idea how to do this. And <laughs> and he said, look, you have to honor it and study it the same way that you would have honored and studied comedy. And, and think about this as technique and think about this as craft. And so we worked with some of the best, and we tried to really honor not only the original Ghostbusters, but other horror films. And and with that introduction, were you looking for something that was intense that would grab people right from the off, and would also introduce the notion of of Egon as a presence in the film? Yeah, I mean, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to make a movie about the Spengler family. We wanted to open with with Egon, and uh, and we wanted to we wanted to see someone die in the middle of trying to catch a ghost, which had not happened Mm -hmm. in the previous films. You know, if my father's uh, point of view is that we should take this stuff seriously, then we should have a, we should have a ghost kill a human and, and take it that seriously and let the audience know we're not screwing around here. Mm -hmm. So Gil Ken and I, who wrote this movie together, that was, you know, if you think about the 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 benchmark moments that you lay out when you're writing a screenplay, uh, from the very beginning, we knew that was going to happen. And uh, we don't have a lot of time, Jason. I mean, there's so much I could talk to you about, but I, I want to skip ahead from that then to the end of the film because <laughs> no, we'll, 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 it's amazing. We'll, co- we'll cover some stuff in the middle. Don't then, worry. Then there's the movie. Don't worry. We'll cover some stuff in the middle. But there's they there's, find a trap. They let out a thing. It goes into the mountain. <laughs> another thing comes out. Uh, <laughs> they find an old Ghostbuster. Yeah. Oh, this is good. You've seen it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but it's just because the introduction of Egon at the beginning is so important in setting up everything that comes after yeah and it leads obviously to to the end of the film yeah and i'm i i will tell you no without a word of a lie i did not expect a ghostbusters movie to move me emotionally but this did at the end and you have are you disappointed by that no i'm i'm delighted by it okay good. i'm delighted by it i was in love with the characters uh and i was wondering if you were going to do something with egon showing up. Yeah. There's an expectation from the audience, obviously, that the other Ghostbusters are going to show up uh, at some point. But the choice of having Egon come back, um, mm. which I'm, I'm presuming is a long conversation with Harold Ramis's estate and Harold mm-hmm. Ramis's family. Can you talk me through that yeah, process certainly. and how you, how you went about? Yeah. I mean, well, we had this, we had this idea, which was a family is introduced to their history and who they are. You know, a teenage girl finds a proton pack on a farm, a teenage boy finds Ecto-1 in a barn, and in so doing, learn who they really are and what adventure lays ahead. And we loved this concept, and we wanted to make a movie about three generations of a family uh, that needed to be repaired. And how do you repair a relationship when someone's no longer there? That was really important to us. And it gets repaired eventually with an embrace. And... And of course, this was the big conversation when we were talking to anybody on the film, particularly visual effects. This movie does not end with an explosion. It does not have a Death Star that blows up. It ends on a hug. Mm-hmm. And the hug has to work or, you, or we've got nothing. Yeah. So the first person to ever read the script was my father. After my father, it was the Ramis family. 
it was Harold's widow, Erica. Uh, it was Harold's daughter, Violet, who I grew up knowing. We were both on the set of the original back in 83. And I talked to them about what we wanted to do, how we were going to do it. They came to set. They viewed visual effects. They came to the editing room. They were of the first people to ever actually see the movie. So they were part of this movie from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And I think they were aware of how much I just wanted to honor Harold. Egon was my favorite Ghostbuster. This is a Spengler story. This movie is dedicated to him in every way. Mm -hmm. So the real question was, how do we pull this off? Mm-hmm. And anyone who enjoys movies has now seen examples of virtual characters that really work and virtual characters that are difficult to look at. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think there's a moment while looking at Tarkin in uh, Force Awakens where you can't help but stop and... And you're not in the movie quite as much. And I love Force Awakens, but there's a moment where you're just going, oh, look how they did his eyes. Like, it just, yeah. Yeah. you can't help it. Yeah. And and it's one thing if it's a, you know, the General Tarkin scene is just kind of in General Tarkin? Admiral? <laughs> is he a general? He's a, he's a Grant Moff. He's a Grant Moff, I believe is what- Actually? What yeah, that's what, it, that's what it actually is. I, I think. deeply apologize <laughs> to all Star Wars fans right now. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I, I didn't, I, I blew it on that one. I don't know the rest of the I let the, uh, you down. I let lineage. myself down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's one thing in a scene in the middle of the movie yeah. where it kind of comes and goes. It's another thing if like, the whole climax of the movie basically will be decided on whether or not you believe these two people are hugging each other yeah. and with a, whether a, a daughter is saying, you know, forgiving her father and saying goodbye to him. Yes. Yes. And, and if these Ghostbusters who have gone through this misunderstanding and who have been broken apart get to stand next to each other one more time in Best of Ghost. And we as an audience who have been on this kind of nostalgia trip the entire time, like the, 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 we completely embrace the concept of nostalgia in this movie because it, this movie is a movie about what is it like to go through your grandparents' things. Yeah. And what if going through your grandparents' things meant, here's the trap, here's the PK meter, here's the proton pack, here is the, the Ecto-1, here are the flight suits, here's the music, here's the sound effects, here's the terror dogs, and finally, here are the guys. And mm-hmm. here they are standing once again next to each other, how you remembered them, how you wish you could have seen them again. And it's got to work. And, and, and the best version I had ever seen was Sean Young in Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, really great. I thought that was exceptional. That, that, that was a moment where when Harrison Ford saw her, uh, it, like, it, it got my heart going. And and I thought it, that that version worked for two reasons. One, because Harrison Ford is absolutely brilliant. Yep. And because the team at MPC in Montreal, who created the Sean Young's character, were exceptional. Yeah. Uh, you looked into her eyes, and it was the the lipsticks, the eyes, the the hair, the that that doughiness in her eyes was still hundred percent the same. <laughs> it was just perfect. It's great. And so we reached out to them and asked if they would bring Harold back to life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they said yes. And it became a journey that lasted the entire making of it. I mean, we're talking about two years just to do that sequence. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. You're right. And it, it's, it's so emotional. The For Harold dedication at the end of the film moved me as well. But there's, there's the hug 
at the end mm. of the film. There's also that shot, as you say, the, the four Ghostbusters standing yeah. together and they all turn to the look at yeah. Egon and there's so much going on there, you know, without getting too much into it, but I know, you know, Bill and Harold's relationship wasn't what it used to be towards the end of, of Harold's life. And when you're considering that as well, everything is packed into no, that shot. Of it's course. beautiful. Uh, you know, and, and, and Violet Ramis wrote an incredible memoir about her life with her father growing up on set. And I'd read that and, and through that, really understood the relationship between Bill and Harold more. She's an incredible chapter about Groundhog Day. She obviously goes into great detail about her father's final years. And, and of course, I'm thinking about not only Harold and Bill's real relationship, which goes back to when my father first met them in the 1970s and they, you know, working in comedy uh, and the National Lampoon show, which of course led to Saturday Night Live. Mm. But- yeah. But the way we all have that, I mean, as we all get older, we, we realize that you have friendships and rifts that go through mountains and valleys over the course of decades. And it's, it's, astonishing. it's astonishing with how little time we're given on earth, how long we allow rifts to yeah. occur over things that eventually always seem meaningless, eventually always seem like a laugh over a beer. Sorry, we're getting very heavy here. Are, I, I, I am sorry if no, that no. was not uh, <laughs> this the is, intention. This, <laughs> like, this is dude, cool. Dude, <laughs> we wanted a Ghostbusters movie. We wanted a podcast about a Ghostbusters movie. Make some jokes. Talk about how you made the thing. Yeah. Stop getting so depressing. That's pretty much. That's pretty much it. If we no, wanted that's... one of your normal movies. We'd have watched Tully, dude. <laughs> <laughs> No, let's get depressing, man. Let's lean into it. Let's lean into it. Absolutely, because it's it's all there. It's all there. I mean, Callie's the way that she um the way that her, her the way that she's so completely shut Egon out of her yeah. life to the point where she doesn't even tell Phoebe and Trevor that their grandfather was a Ghostbuster. Even when they're going to the that house and she's they're slowly finding the the, the accoutrement, she still do, doesn't let yeah. that back into her life. I and thought we're that was about fascinating. Coon also, I mean, Carrie oh, Coon's also yeah. just an astonishingly good actress. Yeah. And uh and that moment works because when she sees him, you were also kind of seeing him through her eyes and she's a yeah, you know, she's a brilliant actress. Mm -hmm. uh, we're lucky to have her. And 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 not, and not to mention Finn Wolfhard and McKenna Grace. Yeah. Who are astonishing talents considering how young they are and are able to play those moments up. And and also Bob Gunton who played Harold on set. Bob Gunton, who you know, uh, your audience will know mm -hmm. as from Shawshank Redemption. He's Warden you know? Norton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, who studied Harold and brought his body language up to set. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and it's it's it, as I say, it's such a uh, really interesting emotional end to the movie. Uh, also, you you bring in the the original Ghostbusters, and as I said, there is an expectation going into this movie that we would see them show up at some point, you know, in the eleventh hour mm -hmm. to maybe save the day. Um, it's interesting balancing as well the story of of Phoebe and Trevor and their fight against against Gozer. Mm -hmm. So, can you talk about the balance of getting that right? So you're still telling Phoebe and Trevor's story at the end, while whilst also giving the audience that buzz of, oh, here's Fankman, here's Ray, here's e you know, here's Egon, and here's Winston back together again. I mean, I wanted to make a movie with the twelve year old girl as the protagonist. She's the same age as my daughter. I wanted to make a hero for my daughter who was a young, smart scientist who was misunderstood by the world, and 
like every Ghostbuster before her, was an outsider who became a hero when she put on the flight suit. So when it came to the ending of the movie, I had this vision of her standing like Clint Eastwood. I think I even we wrote into the screenplay, she stands there, you know, <laughs> like Clint Eastwood, you know, with a shotgun on the horizon, um, pointing her, point, uh, her proton pack. And, and it had to be this marriage of she cannot do it on her own. The original guys cannot do it on their own. And when that extra set of hands mm-hmm. arrives on the proton pack between Phoebe and her grandfather, and, and anyone who's ever swung a baseball bat for the first time or, or learned, how to, learned how to do anything where your, your grandfather, I remember my grandfather taking me fishing as a kid and him holding the fishing rod with me. You know, we, you can just kind of close your eyes and imagine your grandparents' hand around your hand teaching mm-hmm. you to do anything. And, and we wanted that moment and, and we wanted to be intergener- intergenerational because this is for anyone who grew up on Ghostbusters and loves it. We wanted to make a movie for you. Obviously, we wanted to make a movie that reminded you everything you love about Ghostbusters. But also there's a, you know, there's a generation of young people who grew, were born after 1984. We wanted to give them characters to latch on to so Ghostbusters could have a continued life that is out of my hands, out of my father's hands, and will be in the hands of other directors who can continue to make Ghostbusters movies. Mm-hmm. I, which is um, something that is played out in the movie as well. There's this, there's this theme of nostalgia, as you said. There's mm. this theme as, as well of the past being forgotten uh, mm-hmm. very, very quickly. And uh, there's yeah. an element of that in Ghostbusters too, by the time, you know, which takes place, what, five years after the first yeah, Ghostbusters, exactly. and they're already doing children's parties. And you We're know. not going to get into the children's party theme. I know where you're going. I see where you're trying to turn this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I promise you. But <laughs> but of course, in this one, it's what, 37 years after the, after the yeah. first movie. And now the Ghostbusters are a myth mm-hmm. that, you know, you can see dusty old YouTube videos about them. Yeah. But, yeah, but by and large, they are, forgotten about. Is that something that you and, and Gil wanted to explore as well, this idea? Oh, absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, we are kind of astonished by the things that our own daughters only talk about uh, as though they were perhaps true, that they do learn about everything on YouTube. There is a question of what is, you know, what is fact and <laughs> on, on YouTube as well. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's incredible how quickly things become myth, and it's a, incredible how quickly things become ghosts. You know, this is a movie not only about the ghosts that fly in the air, but it's about the metaphorical ghosts. Mm-hmm. It's about the ghosts of our past, and and in that way, it hopefully really became a marriage of my father's my father's kind of movie and my kind of movie. Yeah, I love the way, for example, that you overlay the first movie on you know you overlay this movie on the first movie to an extent. Right. There are things, you know, the 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 decision to go back into Gozer again and to uh, to revisit Ivo Shandor as well, which right. I, I love that. The minute we saw Shandor Mining Company at the beginning, mm. I, I was like, okay, this is interesting. I, yeah, I well, it's it's lovely to have a sense of mythology and to really build upon the foundation that people already know. You want to relive it. Like you want to see Ecto-1 fly around the corner again. You want to see the guys in their flight suits again. You want to re-experience the, these things you know, but you want to experience them in a new way. And so that was always the goal, was this kind of, this marriage in which we, as you exactly said, you begin a new journey, you're in a new place with new people, but you find yourself mapped upon a story that you know somewhere in your heart. And you are finding yourself mapped upon the mythology that you have a connection to because of 
perhaps how much how many times you've watched the first one and how <laughs> how lot. well you know these lines about the gatekeeper and the keymaster and Gozer. Uh, and it's funny because Ghostbusters is an interesting mythology in that unlike Star Wars, where with Star Wars, I think most people have a very strong sense of what the force is and how lightsabers work. Ghostbusters people have a general idea. They mistake Gozer for Zool and Zool for Ghostbuster, and they don't really know who <laughs> Shandor is. So, uh, so we have to, as filmmakers, uh, reintroduce people to these ideas in a concrete way, yeah. um, but also make those ephemeral connections that that happen like bass tones. You just you just kind of feel them and you know them. And it's and 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 in those senses, it's more like the siren of Ecto One, mm -hmm. the, the the sound of the PKE meter, mm -hmm. the way a a, P, a a proton blast goes. You know, these are the things that you know in your bones, and we wanted people to connect back to them. Two real quick last questions, if you don't mind, sir. Yeah, we're having real. too good a time. Let me just uh, finish up. Uh, I'm sorry to, to anyone coming back. I know you want to talk about Gozer. <laughs> I want to talk about all kinds of things. Uh, I want to talk about the Ecto-1 car chase, which is which is interesting because previously Ecto-1 was just something that got the Ghostbusters from A to B. And I, I love know. that you actually gave it its moment in the sun here. Well, yeah. I mean, the Ghostbusters always were four guys standing next to each other busting ghosts. We wanted to put it into motion. And we, we have the most iconic, like, I call it top five most iconic cars. I'll go with uh, that. In movie history. Yep. I mean, if you talk about the DeLorean, you talk about, you know, the DB9 from Bond, like, like literally it's, uh, it's in there and how we got a bust a ghost from the car and we thought of the, you know, we came up with this gunner seat idea and we wanted, we wanted to put a child in danger. <laughs> like the idea of this 12 year old girl <laughs> hanging out the side, flying around corners. Um, and particularly a girl who has been dismissed, who's misunderstood, and who's chalked up as a you know a scientist who doesn't see any action, and now she's hanging out the side of the car and she's confidently pulling the lever uh, to get out, and then she and she busts a ghost, she becomes a hero. Mm -hmm. uh, that that for, that that's a reason to make the movie in itself. Absolutely, and uh, I just very quickly I did want to talk about Gozer and the and the decision to have Shandor in this movie yeah. played by played by J.K. Simmons. Yeah. <laughs> Very very brief cameo yes. from, from JK. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so lucky in that I met I met JK Simmons in an audition for Thank You for Smoking, <laughs> which of course led to him being in Juno and Up in the Air yeah. and uh, everything I've, I've ever done, including movies I I produced like Jennifer's Body and Whiplash. You know, I mean, it, you know, we're you know so we're so linked now, and he he had to be in this, and we knew we were going to have a Shandor who had one line and got ripped in half. By the way, the rip in half was a practical effect. No, really? Yeah, we made the same guy who made the Teradog animatronics created a, a J.K. Simmons that Olivia Wilde could grab his hair and just rip him. <laughs> I remember the visual effects artists, they put together a bid for the ripping in half of Shondor. And I was like, oh no, we're doing this practical. And I said, what are you talking about? Yes, and I'm, I'm a horrible artist. And I drew on a whiteboard this frame with a really shitty gozer with a flat top with a body getting ripped in half. It looked like a six-year-old druid. <laughs> and I said, we're going to make this. And the visual effects team was like, we're keeping this in the budget just in case. You're never going to pull this off. <laughs> and then Arian Tutin, the genius who created the terror dog for us, and of course, you know, worked on Pan's Labyrinth and a bunch of other films, built this, this, this scissoring J.K. Simmons puppet uh, that would rip apart and they would just they would just fill it with goo and then to rip it apart. That is wild. It's amazing. I love that. I love that. It is Olivia Wilde. It is Olivia yeah. Wilde, but it is also Emma Portner. Uh, so the, 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 the movement of Gozer was brought to life by 
the great modern dancer Emma Portner, um, and the performance, the face, uh, is Olivia Wilde. Amazing, amazing, Jason. I'm I definitely now have to let you go, but I could talk to you for ages about uh, this movie. Me too. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Of course. Hey everyone, it's Chris here. Just jumping in for a second to say that if you were shouting at your podcast device during that interview going, Tarkin was in Rogue One, you fools, not The Force Awakens, I know that. I just thought it was unbecoming to interrupt Jason Reitman in full flow, although I did instruct him about Grand Marv Tarkin and all that jazz. But there you go, yes. I know, and I'm sure he does as well, which is a slip of the tongue in the heat of the moment that happens, that Tarkin, terrible CG Tarkin, was in Rogue One and not The Force Awakens. And now with that out of the way and established to everyone's satisfaction, it's back to me and a quite terrible pun. Enjoy. Okay, so that was Jason Reitman. When it came to directing this movie, he was certainly the Uh, Reitman for the job. Oh, God. I feel like we all saw that joke coming. Helen saw the ghost of that joke appearing before (laughs) it even uh, entered the chat. But there was no escape. There was nowhere to run. We tried to trap it and contain it, but it would not be trapped or contained. It could not be trapped or contained, indeed. Uh, So, Ghostbusters Afterlife, folks. First things first, before we dig into the movie, let's talk about general impressions. One of my favourite characters. Uh, What did did you think of the film, first off? Nick, I'm going to start with you as the Ghostbusters fanboy of the group. What did you make of this one? I really enjoyed it, i got to say. And there's there's been a pretty visceral backlash to this film. I think we should probably address that quite early on. There's been a lot of negativity, which did surprise me because I saw this film as kind of just a warm, lovely hug of a film. Yes, there's a lot of leaning on, on, you know, the callbacks and a heavy reliance on nostalgia, which, in my opinion, sometimes goes overboard. But I also thought this film clearly had the right intentions and it didn't feel like a cash grab to me it felt like a film that came from a place of 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 love and reverence maybe a little bit too much reverence at points um but i just really enjoyed it especially the first half where you meet these new characters and i think they're the biggest strength for the film i would agree with almost all of that i think uh, i agree with the nostalgia and the reverence and the first half being brilliant or better. I I do feel like it did feel like a cash grab in the very end scenes where it kind of sets up its own sequel. And I would like, please, for films to do less of this, um, generally speaking. I know Marvel does it and I'm terribly hypocritical for not liking everyone to do it. But at the same time, I don't want everyone to do it. It's not appropriate to every circumstance. And, you know, sometimes just let your film stand, let your film breathe, let your film be, and then see if people want a sequel. You can have the idea in your head. It doesn't mean you need to put it in the credits. Um, So I was a little bit frustrated coming out of this because I felt like the promise of the first half was slightly under delivered upon in the second. And and it did rely a little bit too much on nostalgia for me in that second half. So yeah, it was a Mm. mixed mixed bag for me. It's interesting. I don't think we're always on board with everything... The Marvel do in their post-credits scenes in the MCU. I thought the ones in Eternals were especially egregious, but these two, particularly one with with Ernie Hudson. Now we can talk about that later on, and you know we can talk about. It's interesting that you know they've they've given Winston the reins of the Ghostbusters uh, business going forward. Mm. If indeed there is a forward to go on to, um, because I don't think there's been anything announced about a follow-up or whatever, even though it's done pretty well at the box office, everything has to be taken into consideration with the pandemic and whatnot. But 
I didn't ask Jason Reitman about those post-credit stings because I just, I didn't, it's, it's very rare for me to do that. I usually ask about last shots. I usually ask about post-credit stings, but I just felt that, what was he going to say? And what, you know, what, what could he possibly have said about those things? Maybe I was derelict in my duty as a journalist, who knows, but I just felt there were more interesting things to talk about. They just felt a little bit forced and they felt a little yeah. bit soulless. They felt, they felt half-baked to me. And I'd yeah. be surprised if they had a real plan that they were like, right, we've got concrete steps. It feels like the Ghostbusters franchise always has felt where they've had all these ideas, but I don't think they've really got a strategy of how they're going to move forward. I The Stings were not my favourite thing in the film. I thought they were quite muddled. We can get on to the, Maybe should we get on to The Stings later? Yeah. Yeah, we can get on to The Stings later because I, I want to I bring Ben in as well because I know, I know, hey Ben, how's it going? The Muncher uh, Fan Club president. Yes, yes. Um, wearing a lovely jumper today, Ben. What, what are you wearing? It's a Star Wars Christmas jumper. Oh, that's oh nice. God, the of Can you get a Muncher Christmas jumper yet? Are they available? Can I? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> I've got however many days. What, like, I've got 12 days to try and get a Muncher Christmas jumper. The internet, please help me. With just holes missing from it, because it's where it's been munched by Muncher. <laughs> Although, <laughs> he's, he's, he mostly munches metal, I think. I get the vibe. He doesn't He doesn't eat sort of um, clo- clothing. Wool. Wool yeah. He doesn't eat clothes or organic matter. He's not like a xenomorph. That would be a terrifying thing. He's, he's not a weirdo. He's not like a big freak. He, he just eats metal. Don't kink shame. He, yeah, listen, he, he gets his rocks off at eating metal, and that's totally fine. I remember seeing a guy once in a talk show when I was a kid who who ate glass. Muncher's just basically like that. Maybe Muncher's the ghost of that guy who probably, let's be honest, died from eating glass. So <laughs> there's, there's a chance. What was there was a guy who was like who also did eat metal. I'm sure I remember this. You guys can look it up on the on the internet after you. Uh, if you just go to internet.com, you can look this up. So you can. Um, there's a guy who maybe the same bloke who would do the talk show circuit and he would eat metal. I remember him eating a little bit of a jumbo jet. Not in mid-flight, that would be too dangerous. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember that. What TV was shows that, that were you Twilight watching? Was Zone episode? Was he on the wing of the plane, destroying <laughs> yes. the yes. engines, <laughs> munching bits of the plane? He, he was attacking William Shatner. That's basically what it was. It was an attempt to kill William Shatner. I don't know, maybe I've misremembered something that the internet taught me, which again is one of the themes of this movie, uh, about how we kind of forget things and how things that you think would be part of the storied present. Um, I've got things to present. say about, about Ghostbusters 2 being forgotten. I got very much say, so. I got some stuff to say about that. <laughs> you shock me, Helen. Yeah, so- Helen, you're always one who takes the minutes of these these things. Okay, so we got to write. We uh-huh. got to talk about the post credit stings, and we got to talk about Ghostbusters two being erased from history, sure. munched, munched from canon, <laughs> munched out of existence. <laughs> anyway, Ben, you are not as up in this movie as uh, everyone else in this room. No, I I liked this film. I had a sweet time with it, and enjoyed various parts of it but I saw this in the same screening as Nick and had that situation that I'm not usually in when you come out of a film and there's usually me going oh that was so great I had such a great time with that and I liked this bit and this bit and this bit Um, and Nick was kind of in that space and I was there like oh I liked this and I liked this but there were various things about it that just didn't work for me and I was kind of disappointed I was really looking forward to this and was really into the first half of it to be honest I loved the new characters I had a great time with with Phoebe and podcast and uh, <laughs> that I loved the whole kind of sort of Amblin-y vibe mm. going on here um, liked that a lot and then it wasn't just that it kind of was retreading old ground I thought it just really 
really did a great job of establishing these new characters and then kind of ultimately shortchanged them in the final act for yeah. me. And I think sort of to bring it back a little bit to the post credit stings, I think they actually leave a bit of a sour taste in the mouth because as much as the film can get away with narratively retreading stuff from the first film and building that into the, the texture and the narrative of what's going on, that it is about getting back to the source of the original Ghostbusters, I think then when it just starts flinging like extra scenes at you that don't really connect to anything just to be like, oh, we can crowbar another person in. Here's just a random scene with this person now. Mm. It kind of sours what was happening at the end of the film anyway. So I came out with quite a few qualms, having enjoyed a lot of elements of this film, but always waiting for it to like take the step up to the next level to, you know, when you're sitting there watching something and you're like, oh, here we go. This is great. This is off to the races now. I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. Take me where you want to go. And it was always just, even in its best moments, kind of just about hovering on the edge of that and never for me quite kicking into overdrive. I mean, I, I 100% agree about Phoebe and podcast being great and being lost by the end. Here's a question. Did we need Trevor at all for any reason? Poor Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> or is it Wolf like, Finn Hard? against him. He's, I'm sure he's a lovely man. But... D- <sighs> It yeah. was a waste of space, I thought. Yeah. Was he Whoa. meant to be like the kind of the new Venkman? Was he meant to be the Bill Murray kind of, you know, because you got podcast who is the Acro, who's the Ray. You know, they even have that little chat where that lovely joke, that was one of my favorite bits where you discover that, that Ray stance is the only person who listens to podcast <laughs> that podcast. Was cute. <laughs> that was really fun. Um, and she's obviously Egon. Um, so mm-hmm. you're kind of drawing parallels, which leaves him as Bill Murray, but that, uh, well, that- isn't it, isn't it his girlfriend as Bill Murray, whose name I definitely remember, remember. Lucky. How is she Venkman Ash? Is she Venkwoman? Well, because she's cool, but he's not cool. I don't know. He definitely wasn't cool. It's difficult to have a Fankman, I think, in today's day and age, because let's be honest, Fankman was problematic. <laughs> I think he's a little sleazy. He's a little sleazy. Obviously, the Fankman that we meet in this movie has settled down, and if we are to believe the first post-credit sting, uh, he is now in a loving and committed relationship with with Dana. But Fankman in the first movie, particularly, is a sleaze ball and a sleaze bag. Yeah. I, okay. All right. He's pestering women. He's electrocuting men. He's he's got some uh, problematic. <laughs> uh, he's got some grey areas. But I mean, yeah. The, 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 apart from that stuff, he's also very you know witty, sarcastic. There's all mm-hmm. that. You could absolutely still do that. And there wasn't any of that really in the Finn Wolfhard character. Is there a point to Trevor apart from the fact that he can drive? <laughs> Which is, he can't drive which very important. well. He's like crashing into stuff constantly. <laughs> this is true. Is he there basically as a kind of counterpoint to Phoebe to establish that he's like a typical teenager. He's kind of gawky. He's like wants to get the girl. He's kind of a bit bummed out that they've moved to the middle of nowhere. But then it just sets him as a difference to her where she is like super nerdy and kind of ha- is not your typical teenager in a lot of ways or, or kind of I guess she's sort of a tween she's like not quite a kid kid but she's no, not yeah, quite tween, a full-on teenager yeah. yet um, so I wonder if he was there basically as a counterpoint I thought it was quite nice to have them as like a little family unit of the three of them rather than it just being uh, Carrie Coon's character in the, and then Phoebe would have maybe been mm. quite a slight family unit yeah. to base this around but but couldn't Trevor I, I absolutely agree that that's that's why he's there and that and the driving but like couldn't they have? I just feel like he was a wasted character, and this is again nothing against Finn Wolfhard, but I just felt he was underwritten, underused, and and ended up. I was frustrated by him. I think I just find him a bit pointless. And the, the original characters are so memorable and so mm. colourful. You know, it just felt like a blank 
it's true that the original uh you know trio or quartet however you want to put it because winston isn't much of a presence in that first film uh, another reason why two is a masterpiece um <laughs> but yeah the, you can't imagine you can't imagine that unit working without each other they they mm. complete each other you know and and yeah the Finn Wolfhard characters is an amiable presence, but you can absolutely imagine the film without him there still working. So yeah. it's definitely a short, definitely a bit of a shortcoming. It's interesting as well because I would say that the age difference between them, I don't. Everyone grows up differently, obviously, but she's so different from from Trevor. She feels a little bit Phoebe, almost like an only child in a way that she's grown up in this very, very strange, idiosyncratic way. You know, uh, I grew up seven years apart from my sister, and I felt a little bit like an only child in that in that sense. And obviously, I grew up very weird. Um, I don't know about you guys, but there may be something going on there. I suspect, but I don't know because again, I focused the interview with Jason Reitman in a different direction. I suspect there was a lot of Trevor that, that just got lost in in the editing shuffle. Uh, I suspect mm-hmm. the, the same with Celeste O'Connor as Lucky, you know, um, and maybe her father as well. Yeah, Booking Woodbine. I suspect that there was probably more with him, but you have to, I guess, whittle it down and focus on one story. And as you heard in the interview with Jason Reitman, you know, he has a daughter around the same age as Phoebe. And so he decided to focus it on, on, a, on, a, on a daughter's tale and a daughter's perspective. I think the family history here is a very interesting thing to, to get into. I think Carrie Coon is a really interesting character. Callie is a really interesting character in this. And now she is so cold towards her father, uh, Egon. That I think that 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 almost warrants a movie by itself, where you're just delving into that, like what happened exactly to to cause this schism, where she doesn't know him at all, she feels absolutely nothing towards him. She, you know, her kids don't know really who he is or what he was, which I think is very very interesting, uh, and I, I don't think it ever really gets fully explored or resolved. I find that frustrating as well because. The idea that you know Egon, yes, he's a he's an unusual guy, um, uh, and and he has his preoccupations. But if you give him enough of a relationship to have a child, if you give him a relationship with that child, which he clearly had for at least some of her life, and then you have him completely abandon her, that that feels wildly out of character to me. I you know I I just I had real trouble with that because I think. You know, we're meant to think, oh, but he still cared about her and he felt this mission to, you know, to keep this spiritual invasion under control. I don't know. Wouldn't you take the kid with you to your idyllic farmhouse in the gorgeous open air? I, I don't I don't know. I think it's him that I don't understand. It's not her. He abandoned her by the standards of the film. And and that feels really, really extreme and really harsh for his character. And I, I had real trouble with that. It's definitely a jump you have to make. I kind of mm. made it because I think the film really won me over. And I think the biggest weakness of this film going in, that there is no Egon, like one of the key guys is not there. They turned into its biggest strength, for me anyway, because like, the whole film is powered by by that character, even though he's he's not there. The thing to remember is we don't know that much about Egon. He's not exactly a well-developed character in the first two films. He's a big old weirdo. He's basically there to like talk about his his spores and fungus collections and <laughs> just be a mentalist who's like trying to drill into people's heads and you know, he's he's a lunatic. I mean, and he gets completely he's completely obsessed with science and his work. So you kind of have to make that jump that he is so obsessed with this thing that he's discovered that everything else he just drops everything else. I kind of made it I because I don't think it contradicts anything in the first two films. We assume because of the information we're given that he's got a family, we kind of assume like, what is he doing? 
Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying it contradict directly contradicts anything. I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't. It it just still feels very. There, there's a kind of heroism to giving up your life and and you know appointing yourself the guardian of this dimension of existence, but there's such a, a degree of kind of villainy in in abandoning your kid completely to do mm-hmm. so that I have real trouble squaring that circle and and. I realize that you know we all contain multitudes but that's a that's a contradiction that I find tough in a film like this. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with Egon and we should talk obviously later on about Harold Ramis and and how much they lean into using a digital double and bringing him back at the very very end and what what we felt about that. But you're right. I think Helen you're right that that the the idea that Egon and I guess what did I talk to Jason Reitman about? Because again, it's something that maybe I should have, I should have asked him about a little bit more. But I was just more, maybe more fascinated about the, the decision to to use Harold Ramis's image in this movie. So, uh, but it is interesting that that Egon does this. It is interesting the hoops they jump through, uh, Gil Kennan and and Jason Reitman to make that kind of work on a story level. And I think it did. I mean, the, the film utterly charmed me mm. and I, I, I had a very, very good time with it. But it's one of those movies where maybe after the fact you're going, all right, so we really meant to believe and I go, I know we're doing that thing again where we take something <laughs> like this, a bit a bit of fluff uh, way too seriously and it's not like there aren't massive plot holes in the first Ghostbusters and all that sort of stuff. And I get that. But we really meant to believe that that Ray wouldn't take Egon seriously. That, you know, yeah. that's that you know, these two in particular are the 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 science nerds upon whom the Ghostbusters was founded and Ray would let his, you know, one of his best mates just go off and not talk to him for years. And yes, obviously there's something tied in there about loss and regret and the conversations we don't have with people when they're when they're alive. As you heard in the interview with Jason Reitman, that's kind of what happened with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. You know, they had a falling out after Groundhog Day, after, you know, in the final years of Ramis's life, there was a Reconciliation of sorts towards the end, just before Harold died, but that's an example of of firm, fast friends falling out in real life. You look at the the Beatles, for example, and Get Back. There's there it is again, best friends falling out over something, in hindsight, remarkably trivial. So I guess that does make sense, really, if you look at it that way. But all that stuff that is grist for the thematic mill, but it also doesn't really make a lot of sense when you look at it. And why would he just run off and abandon Callie and abandon his two grandchildren without telling him about it? Why would he do that? Yeah, it doesn't doesn't entirely work for me. But that said, all the stuff with the presence of Egon, I thought was really lovely. The chess game that he has with Phoebe all the way through it, you know, helping her and then helping Callie shine a light on things in his laboratory, I thought was very, very interesting and uh, and fun. Uh, and I thought the opening scene, if I'm honest with you, I thought the opening scene was as far as they were going to go. When I realized the opening scene was going to was was going to start with Egon, and you get that glimpse of his silhouette you don't really see his face in that scene i thought that's as far as they're gonna go and then it was towards the end of the movie i was like oh they're gonna show him aren't they and i'll be honest i wasn't sure how i felt about that initially but it won me over there are obviously all kinds of of ethical conversations to have here about using people's likenesses and images and after they have died and harold ramus has been dead now for for a number of years sadly but the movie, I think, packs enough of an emotional punch. I didn't expect 
to get emotional watching a Ghostbusters movie. I'll be honest. The first Ghostbusters movie is as far removed from earnestness as you can possibly get. <laughs> it is a cynical, slick gag machine that doesn't have a doesn't have an emotional bone in its body. Not really. And I think I don't know. And this one does. And this one does. This one is is all about hitting you in the feels. And that last shot of the of the three of them being joined by ghostly Egon. It got me. I think there's some emotion in the first one, and definitely in the second one. But in the first one, you know, you have that scene that is completely laugh-free between Ray and Winston in the car, where they're talking seriously, and it feels like the film has real stakes as a result of that scene. And then at the end, when they come out and all of New York comes together to like cheer them on, I feel like that film drops its cynicism at the end, and it kind of goes, "Look, they brought the whole city together." I, I love that scene with, with with Ray and Winston in the car, you know, and you know, where they're quoting the Book of Revelation, which I think they, you know, they're, they're just made some bits up, obviously, but uh, you know, that's really that's really interesting. And I guess the scene at the end where they go, you know, where they they think they're buying a, a one way ticket to the afterlife, mm. and you know pleasure working with you and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's there's moments there, but it's not like, there's not like an earnest... Yeah, there's moments of earnest, like flashes of earnestness and it drops its kind of cynical facade for a little bit and then puts it back up again. The, the second film is much more unapologetically uh, cheesy stroke heartfelt, as in they actually lean into the emotion with the Statue of Liberty and everyone cheering them on and all that. So, yeah. you know, I think that's part of the reason people don't like it. Um, where, and this film pushes it even further in that direction in actually going full on, we're going to take our stakes seriously. We're going to make this a real, you know, heartfelt kind of love letter to something. So I don't know if that's why a lot of people don't like it. Maybe that's part of it. But I got to confess, I, I cried a couple of times watching this. Mm. I did. I'm going to say it. I think that's one of the interesting or, or difficult things of trying to revitalize Ghostbusters, right? Because I, I do agree, as much as the original has its moments where it drops the cynicism, overall, the tone of that film is irreverent. That's what people love it for. It is it is a, a comedy with some really fun spookiness going on. It is an irreverent thing in itself that now is revered within pop culture. The reverence for it is almost counter to the irreverence of the thing itself, which is why people love it. But that's why then you make something like the Paul Feig Ghostbusters answer the call or whatever they've called that now. <laughs> and as much as I didn't love that film, that is, it's just a comedy about these Ghostbusters. But then people are like, hey, this is not my Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters means something. Ghostbusters means something to me, which I understand. But then you do something like this and it's like leaning into the emotional side of it and telling an emotional story that for me, for the most part, did work. But I think that's why you maybe get those moments of disconnect where, like Helen's saying, you're going, well, why would Egon do that? Why would things have got so bad to the point that he like abandons his daughter uh, to, that you need something like that to, to hook this emotional story on, but that almost feels at odds with the originals because it wasn't about trying to do anything kind of hefty or emotional. I, I admire the attempt to do that and to tell a story that is emotional and, and that takes something that was sort of fun and, and goofy and tie some kind of meaning to it, especially in terms of the passing of the baton from uh, Ivan Reisen, Reitman to Jason Reitman. But I think it's in that gap that you feel some of those kind of plot holes creeping in or those things that just, even as you're watching it in your head, you're thinking, I, I don't quite feel how this kind of connects. Yeah, I, I think, I, I just think it could have been sharper. Like all of the, all of the Egon stuff worked for me. I had the same ethical questions as you, Chris. I think it's just, you know, I, I'm assuming in this case that 
you know, the Harold Ramis's family were involved, that they felt um, respected, that they felt he would have been very up for it. Obviously, it was a film that meant a lot to, I think, all of those guys, and and they had a lot of affection clearly for each other and for the for the the characters. So mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I I sort of I bumped on it, but didn't trip on it, if you like. You know, it, it sort of felt like it it could work, and and the sight of you know seeing someone we all have affection for brought back for a moment is is emotional it absolutely is so i i think it was more just those like ben says it's it's getting to that point it's finding a way to get there without maybe tripping us up on some of these inconsistencies because again if you if you want to tell a family story you need to give us a bit more sense of that family and i'm not sure that a wall full of photographs was quite enough. And I felt maybe one of the things I, th- I felt this film kind of lost in the second half was Callie herself, um, who's clearly a really messed up woman, verging on a very bad mother. I mean, certainly not a great mother. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing to explore, but the film just didn't really. Uh, it didn't really look at, was she trying to turn her life around now? Was she, you know, how was she changing? How were things moving on? It kind of lost interest in that. It lost interest even in Paul Rudd, which I didn't think any film could do, but here we are. So I, I just, I felt a little bit cheated that all this attention given to the old characters, which did work and was emotional and, and I it, it did hit me in the feels and I'm not, you know, completely callous. But it it undermined those new characters quite a bit, and it undermined their story arcs. It wasn't just the the characters, because I think there's actually not very much of the old characters. I think it's only really the last twenty yeah. minutes of the film, as I recall. But it's it's more the fact that it leans so heavily on the mythology of the first film, which I was actually pretty disappointed by. Because I, I again, not to bang on about Ghostbusters too, but at least it, you know it, it's in some ways it's a Xerox of the first film, but it. it comes up with its own mythology and new villain new ghosts like and it felt quite fresh in that regard whereas with this film it just starts hitting the same beats and when you literally have paul rudd turning into rick moranis and turning into a dog and and all that stuff i was just like i liked elements of it but it went too far i think just repeating stuff yeah uh, to to uh, add a third opinion into this mix, for me, I did have a problem with the original Ghostbusters coming back because I wanted to feel the feels of that moment. But I have to say, it did. I thought those performances were not great, and it really deflated all those scenes for me. I was once you go, okay, we're going to bring all the oldies back, and you sort of know it's going to get to that point anyway. You want that to be the best version of itself that it can be. But that moment where they literally call up. Dan Aykroyd, he, in every sense for me, phoned in that scene. I didn't feel anything. And when they turn up at the end, I felt a bit of sadness at the, like, oh, this should be the big moment, but it, it fell really flat for me. I think Bill Murray is such a freewheeling Bill Murray machine that you can get him to turn up and you can stick the proton pack on him, but he's going to say and do what Bill Murray wants to say or do. And I think it felt to me more in service of having hey, Bill Murray's here and now do what you want rather than giving them stuff that really kind of felt like great moments for those characters. I love what the Star Wars sequels do with the original characters. And I'm aware that to an extent this film is doing similar things, but there are real clear differences for me in terms of why for me those Star Wars films succeed and why this one just didn't hit the mark. And I think part of that is the performances because when you Mm. bring Harrison Ford back as Han Solo in The Force Awakens, I think he's incredible in that film. He really goes for it in a sense that then for me, when these original Ghostbusters turned up, 
it just felt like they were there in body, but maybe, ironically, not in spirit. I enjoyed I enjoyed them turning up. You can almost set your watch by the moment when they turn up. You know, it's like, okay, they're going to they're, they're gonna turn up. And it makes you wonder how long they were off camera watching things unfold and going, should we intervene? No, wait for it. There's going to be an optimum moment for us to intervene. Now. It was quite a long drive up the path, Chris. Presumably. And then <laughs> they have to get out. Lane. They're not, they're not you know, sprightly anymore. They're not spring chickens anymore. I think, I think the, the Fenkman thing is really interesting because I think that dialogue is written for a 40-year-old Bill Murray and not a 70-year-old Bill Murray. And it feels weird, quite frankly, coming out of a 70-year-old man's mouth. And I think they could have maybe taken that into consideration a little bit more. But at the same time, it's kind of like, this is what you want, right? What I don't think they necessarily expected was that we would all connect so much with the new characters, particularly Phoebe and particularly Podcast, that by the time the new, the old guys turn up, it's like, well, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need you anymore. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, this movie would have been totally fine if the old Ghostbusters hadn't turned up and if Phoebe and Trevor and Lucky and Podcast and Callie and Mr. Gruberson, and I remember all their names, uh, <laughs> had, had teamed up to save the day in themselves. But at the same time... Despite all that, it worked for me. You know, it doesn't need them. They could have maybe tweaked some of Bill Murray's lines, but it totally worked for me on an emotional level. I have a couple of points I wanted to pick up on as well before we talk about some other stuff in terms of the movie. Nick, you're—I think you're right about the the mythology. It's really interesting, and I—I I, I liked from the second from the, from the opening seconds when I realized, you know, when you get that. Um, Ivo Shandor Mining Company, you think, oh, okay. If you know, if you're a Ghostbusters fan, you will probably know that he is the one who was heavily involved in the building of Spook Central. So, you know, uh, okay, we're back in Gozer territory. Cause I didn't I hadn't really watched the, the trailers for this because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to go to Spoiler Central uh on this before I saw the movie. So I didn't know that that's where they were going. And I thought that that's fine. This is all great. You know, going back to Gozer, Gozer's a memorable, iconic villain. But I think Nick's right about the fact that Ghostbusters 2 is erased. And I mentioned this briefly on, a, on, a, on the regular podcast. And I wonder if this might have been more impactful had we had more Ghostbusters movies. And I still don't understand how we only had two Ghostbusters movies. Uh, because Ghostbusters 2 was a huge hit in 1989. And how they how Columbia Pictures then did not make another movie after that. I know there were lots of you know, Bill Murray is the answer to that, by the yeah. way. He was on the press tour for Ghostbusters 2 saying there will not be a Ghostbusters 3. <laughs> you can so make I a think- Ghostbusters 3 without Bill Murray. You, know, you, just, know. you just get I Kristen Wiig, you not get Melissa McCarthy. Not back, not back then. <laughs> Out of high school at the time. <laughs> yeah. But I was, yeah, I was annoyed when they go to YouTube and they look up, um, you know, and everyone's like... <sighs> Like how how have people forgotten there are ghosts? I I mean, on one level, I get it because people are very very stupid and don't believe in science and don't believe stuff that is in front of their <laughs> eyes. But the Statue of Liberty freaking walked across New York, and they haven't erased um, Ghostbusters two entirely because the toaster from Ghostbusters two is actually in the farmhouse. <laughs> I was I was told. Um, <laughs> So it it did it is canon. They haven't erased it, but at the same time, the Statue of Frickin' Liberty walked across the city yeah. while some amazing power music played. But I mean, you know, kids nowadays like haven't seen Indiana Jones movies. You know, like I I heard somebody on the radio this morning talk about Santa Claus the movie being a very 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 old movie, and I was like, all right, that's a personal attack. But yeah, you know, I think you know things that happened thirty years ago, forty years ago, nearly. People maybe just don't care 
that much about. The thing that I would buy is that the people who would care the most about this are kids. Like, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with, I don't know, dinosaurs and volcanoes and the Bermuda Triangle. All these things that are just like really grabby, sort of mystery, weird things. Um, obviously, volcanoes are not a mystery or a weird thing that is geographically explainable. Uh, Roland Emmerich will probably say something else in, in <laughs> Volcano Fall. <laughs> but if there's something that would like capture kids' imaginations, that would be part of the of history of the texture of our world taught in schools, that would really kind of yeah, the, the kids would be obsessed with it. It would be the fact that there was a big marshmallow monster in New York and that ghosts are real and everyone saw them. And so I, I think that was something that, again, while you're trying to watch the film and just enjoy the sweetness of it and fall in with these new characters, it is there in the in your, in your brain going like, but why don't they know about any of this stuff? It wasn't that long ago. And surely podcast he must be listening to podcasts about this mm, stuff because that is the exact sort of thing that podcasters yeah. would be obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phoebe is a, a lovely internet weirdo and surely she would know about this as well, let alone their kind of estranged family connection to it all. Yeah. So that there, were, you ha- there was a lot of suspension of disbelief in all of that. I didn't quite understand or believe in the world that this was trying to present. It was a little bit muddled. As with another recent movie, then you want to explore the theological implications of what's gone on here and, and the impact it has on religions around the world, really. Yes, and the psyche of the collective consciousness. Come on, it's got to have an impact. <laughs> Are we talking about Clifford the Big Red Dog? <laughs> um, it's a little bit muddled. Isn't there a line in this film where somebody says there hasn't been a ghost since the 80s or there's been no ghost, like all the ghosts are gone? Yeah. Like someone literally says that, and that confused me. I was like, have the Ghostbusters caught every ghost? Maybe it's like a hellmouth, you know? You close the hellmouth, then you don't have a problem for a little bit, at least in that area, until another hellmouth opens. I feel that's kind like. of what Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2 yeah. explored this a little bit, didn't it? Ghostbusters 2 took place just five years after the original, and already they were down on their luck, and people were people had gone back to not believing that it was real and all all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. And even Ghostbusters, you know, Ghostbusters in its own way was very prescient. It, it uh, predicted COVID, um, you know, the people who believe that COVID is a hoax. You know, you know, Walter Peck thought that ghosts were a hoax, and he didn't believe in it all and uh, that guy worked for the Environmental Protection Agency for the love of God so we need COVID um, busters COVID busters that's exactly what they are I don't know I, you know there, yeah there are moments of that as well that I bumped up against the fact that you know Egon is a recluse now and is off on his farm and everyone in the town thinks he's crazy and it's like this dude saved the world twice he would be a hero uh, his, he would be one of the most famous people on the planet surely but here we are again applying real world um, <laughs> measures to a fictional movie yes hello Nick I, the, the thing I found with just going back to the Egon thing I, the thing I found hard to believe I kind of buy that Venkman might just drift off and, and hmm. not believe him or not care but Ray, that I, I struggled to believe that Ray would yeah. not buy into what Egon is saying and not listen to him because they were those two were so tight at the beginning of the first film. They were like buddies. They were doing the they basically came up with the technology together. I think Ray would listen. So that that yeah. bit I found hard to yeah. especially hard. There's also like a shit ton of physical evidence of there being something weird going on here. Like, just a literal mountain of it. A mountain, (laughs) a physical mountain of evidence that this place is a, you know, supernatural hotspot, not in the sexy shirtless way. And I, uh, and yet, and yet, Ray apparently hasn't gone for a look. All he has to do is call Ray. That reminded me a little bit of the beginning of Omen 2 with the, uh, 
the the wall and Damien's face being on the wall and you know the the ancient wall that predicts what the Antichrist is, is going to look like and Bogenhagen being buried under the sand, uh, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, all he needs to do is call Ray and just say, look, come out here. You will not believe the shit. J.K. Simmons is lying down in a glass coffin, uh, for example, for, for one scene. Uh, so <laughs> sure, I, I can't believe Surely it there's a story there. There is a story there, and don't call me Shirley. I, I like the fact that they got J.K. Simmons in and you're expecting him to like have a massive scene and then he just gets ripped into. And it's uh, <laughs> that's it. He's gone. by J.K. I don't know. Maybe yeah. there was more. Maybe there was scenes that got cut. Reitman says not, but ah. yeah, maybe, maybe there, maybe there was. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, also, Olivia Wilde as Gozer. What do we, what do we make of her? Cool, actually. Yeah, Josh yeah. Gad as Muncher. Josh, I mean, that's the real performance what? everyone's going to be talking about. Josh mm-hmm. Gad as Muncher. I need that as a character poster to put next to my Zendaya as Michi poster. <laughs> <laughs> what was his day on? What was it? How long did he spend in the booth? Just going. <laughs> We need to do a roundtable that's him, Alan Tudyk, and uh, Ben Schwartz did uh, BB-8. We need to get them just to talk about making just like weird noises that then become <laughs> sort of voice cameos in films. They can just make noises at each other for an hour. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to just work out how to transcribe that, how to portray that in print. Just, he's just gadding about. Uh, oh. that's what they're, just joshing. Uh, something about two dicks? No. Uh but just to go back, because there is another Egon point I wanted to make, but I, I want to go back to that that point that I w- was trying to make in a ham-fisted kind of way. If Bill Murray notwithstanding, if they had been in between 1989 and now, like four more Ghostbusters movies, right? And each one of those had 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 a different bad guy and a different a different type of mythology to tackle. I think this would have made the return to Gozer and all the Sumerian nonsense. That would have worked. I think that maybe would have been a little bit more impactful. As it was, I quite liked it, but it is just one of those things that you can just overlay this movie on the first one. Yeah, and and even if you go back to Gozer, but you had another incarnation, uh, another like not in, in the Olivia Wilde sense, but like another equivalent of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. You know, you had another twist on Gozer. You had Gozer doing yeah. something else. I guess there's maybe a commentary on that the dead can't improvise and can't come up with new ideas. But the point last time was that, you know, she took inspiration from the minds of the living. So what would what would the minds of the living now supply instead of Stay Puft? Like in that case, you know, you can still have the little Stay Puft men as a, a sort of little meta echo of the first film, the idea that Goes are still sort of putting out the same energies, but you would also have a, f- a final form that is new and different and an evolution and something that adds something to this film instead of just echoing the monsters we've seen before. Hey, it could have been a giant podcast. <laughs> Think, podcast. Think about whatever first comes into your mind. Oh my God, a giant podcast is approaching. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know what? I'm glad you brought up this the little, what are they called? Mini puffs, I think Jason Ryman calls them, mm-hmm. Helen. Um, I didn't like them. I didn't like them. I mean, I liked them, but they make no sense. And they are the most sort of craven bit of, of pandering to the fans of the first film because there is literally no reason why they exist in this film, is there? Um, No. No, I guess not. <laughs> Having said that, when the first time I saw that scene, because that clip was obviously shown in isolation, it was released to the internet. And I, when I saw that, my heart sank and I was like, oh no, what is this film going to be? And then when you see it in context, I think it works a little bit more. We perhaps didn't need to see them gadding about, just joshing, uh, melting each other, all that sort of stuff. They feel a little bit like gremlins more than they do mm. anything I else. I like the gremlins fun. energy of that. I thought that was fun. Uh, yeah, they it was they fun. did fun things. 
I didn't have any issue with what they were doing. I just, they, why do they exist? Why out of everything in the Walmart do the Stay Puffed men? Because it's just, it's literally just a reference to reference something from another film. There's no in film reason for them to be there. Maybe Gozer's just been meta. Who knows? Oh, that's interesting. I never met a ghost I didn't like. Oh, no. But yeah, like Helen said, it could have, it's just giving it a new wrinkle. Like, turns out Gozer is just the messenger for something even worse, and something even worse arrives, or just something like that, just so it doesn't just feel like been there, you know, busted that. It also, does it slightly undermine the first movie as well? Because it makes it feel like the first movie was just like, it didn't really matter. It was just like a dry run, really, for this, and this was the real attempt. Oh, God. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Before we get into talking about the things I really, really liked about this movie, because it does feel a little, it does feel a little bit like we're we're going. Yes, we like that scene, but um, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about Egon because one of the things I liked most was the opening scene. Mm. Ghostbusters was a huge film for me in terms of it being a kind of a gateway into into horror for me when I was a kid. I saw it when I was about eight years old, I think. And uh, the arms tearing through the armchair and grabbing Sigourney Weaver and carrying her off to, you know, Fridgetown, where she's uh, she's literally fridged in that movie for a little <laughs> bit. And, uh, you know, all that stuff with the librarian ghost are genuinely really good scares in that film. Gozer is a really otherworldly presence that has long lived in my mind. And I went into this movie going, okay, it's probably not going to scare me, you know, as much as a regular horror film would, but I'm going to try and put myself into the, the shoes of an eight to 12 year old watching this movie. Is it going to hit those notes? And I think it does. I think that opening scene, for example, with Egon is genuinely, that's pretty gnarly, yeah. you know, and they mm -hmm. kill him. They kill Egon in the opening Scene, which is Jason Reitman said, is something that they wanted to do. They'd never, we've never seen a ghost kill someone in one of these movies before, and to do so, you have you're immediately raising the stakes. That's yeah. If I'm eight to twelve years old, I'm thinking, wow, that's scary. B, where do I get more of shit like this? Yeah, I loved the spookiness of this opening because I think that there's a, a fun combination of it being yes, sort of kiddie-ish horror. But also just that sense of of spookiness, of ghostliness. I feel like we don't get enough of that in cinema. And to be honest, that's something that I thought the Paul Feig one had in moments as well. Mm -hmm. There's that, um, again, is it another library ghost? I remember there's like a lady ghost towards the beginning. And they do some quite fun, spooky stuff and, and kind of make her look pretty terrifying. But the whole atmosphere of that opening, it sort of establishes, you get some of that sort of Amblin feel, but also it establishes a spooky tone that you really need for Ghostbusters to to kind of complement and counteract some of the comedy stuff that's going on. You need that stuff to feel kind of scary and kind of eerie. It's that eeriness that um, I think Ghostbusters does that maybe a lot of other franchisey things um, don't necessarily give you in that kind of comedy adventure space. Yeah. The first half of the film, I think, has big poltergeist energy and... Um that that freaky wolf thing is pretty good as well. Mm. The, the whatever that is, aware ghost wolf. Yeah, I, it just takes it. It takes its story seriously, and it takes the stakes seriously, and it, it's exciting, especially in the first half. I wanted more ghosts though, like because towards the end, when all the ghosty stuff is unleashed, and you see the the skeleton guy in the shop, and and I, I don't know, I feel like you see a lot of ghosts, but then you they don't get a chance to really play with those much. I would have liked to see, as well as monstery things, more ghosts in my Ghostbusters movie. 
you are planning to have some uh, ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I agree. I also like we've a couple of we've mentioned uh, Amblin a couple of times, and and I do think that's worth mentioning. I feel like people are beginning to maybe realise that Amblin was onto something and come back to that model a bit after you know a, a decade or more of kids films that have been perhaps a little bit overly cuddly. I mean, I say this knowing full well that Coraline exists, but you know, I feel like hmm. we're we're kind of realizing, hmm. and maybe Stranger Things has done it, and Finn Wolfhard is entirely responsible for this. So well done him. But I feel like people are remembering that a bit of genuine scariness and a bit of genuine peril or danger actually helps your film rather than hurting it, and that kids are maybe a little bit tougher than we sometimes give mm -hmm. them credit for, and that you don't always have to cater to the scarediest scaredy cat in the room. And I say this as the scarediest scaredy cat in the room, you know, we can <laughs> take it. Especially when Amon's not here. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think even if you look at the, the sort of recent lineage, you go a couple of years further back than, than Stranger Things. And I think the thing that actually kicks all of this off is Super 8. And I think in Super 8, it yeah. has a couple of like properly spooky moments as well. There's the attack on the bus. There's all the stuff at the gas station, which is, is yeah, using that like Amblin-y language. But it is giving you like actual scares and monster movie scares and i i think that's part of of what gives you stranger things and then i do think stranger things is a big part of what gives you this well i mean even before that there was monster house another gil kennan film mm -hmm. um although mm -hmm. you know maybe that wasn't quite such a, a massive hit but i think that it's always been there bubbling under the surface but i feel like we're beginning to you know bring it back to the mainstream i can't let a conversation like this go without mentioning goosebumps the first yes. one which i thought was absolutely fantastic terrific. film yeah Second one, not so much, but the uh, the first one, very, very good. Are we in the home stretch? Is there anything else you want to talk about? Have we talked enough about Phoebe? Have we talked enough about McKenna Grace, who is the saving grace of this movie? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think we can. I think she's fantastic. It actually took me a little bit of time to recognise her. I'd forgotten the cast list. I didn't at all refresh my mind before I went in. And I was like, oh, I like her. She's good. She's, uh, who, who is she? She, she looks like... <laughs> She, she looks familiar. She looks actually like McKenna Grace. It's, oh, she, that's because she is McKenna Grace. Okay, well done. It's amazing what a dark uh, perm can do to a girl. But um, but no, I think she's I think she's fantastic. I think it's such a performance here. Um, it's so studied, and yet it doesn't feel anything but natural. You just feel like this is her. She's a weird little kid. She has her own interests. She doesn't really conform to anyone else's. And, uh, you know, and, and she has kind of trouble with people. I had just an enormous amount of sympathy and empathy for her from basically minute one. I think she's adorable. Mm. I think she's great in her scenes with Paul Rudd. We haven't talked about Paul Rudd at all. No. And I think he's a really fun character in that you're talking about Callie being a really bad mum. And he's really interesting in that he's a really bad teacher. <laughs> like, he doesn't want to embrace his, his responsibilities at all. He shows his class deeply inappropriate films like Cujo <laughs> and Child's Play in lieu of actually teaching them stuff. Uh, and the two of them together, you just know when they, when they do come together, it's quite fun actually that they turn out to be the gatekeeper and the key master because it's all there because they're, 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 they're terrible people who are deeply wrong for each other and they know that. Uh, but they, they work together very, very nicely. But her scenes with him, I think are interesting because he is a small town teacher who I think is just cruising through life and he doesn't have any uh, pupils to stimulate him, which is weird because podcast is really fun and, and interesting. And then along comes this kid who awakens something in him. It's like, oh, 
this is potential. This is what potential looks like. This is what it feels like. Oh, now I'm infested again. Now I'm engaged again. Uh, and then they turn him into a terror dog, which seems like a little bit of a waste of Paul Rudd, but uh, at the same time, it's not his story. No, but like I do feel like there's a, a happy medium there, not in the go- talking to ghosts Ooh, way, but you know, happy medium. If 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 they are kind of setting him up as a new part of this family, which they are, because he's going on these very successful dates with the mum. Mm-hmm. Then and they ha- they have sex, they have intercourse. That's made very clear. Very is, successful but, date. You know, that's when they're possessed. So that <laughs> we can leave that aside. But you know, if they're setting him up as a part of this family, then shouldn't they kind of gull the whole hog and make him part of the family? Shouldn't that be part of the denouement of the film? Is him in some way stepping up a little bit, and the mother stepping up a little bit, and they don't get the chance to do that because they are essentially made the screaming damsels in distress here. I get mm. why, you know, that gives the kids something to do, but it, it does feel like a little bit of a shame for that unit. I kind of like that he gets nothing heroic to do in this whole film. Like he's <laughs> on the poster looking like, oh, poor Rod's going to get a proton pack and he's going to like kick ass. And he does absolutely nothing heroic whatsoever <laughs> at all, yeah. apart from like unleash a ghost and, you know, spend the third act running around on, on four limbs. But yeah, he was fun. I wanted more of him. I think we all want yeah. more poor Rod, right? Yeah. Yeah. Always Absolutely. Paul Rudd. So I hope they do make another one because I want to see Mr. What, Guberson? Gruberson. 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 Good Gary character Gruberson. name. Good character Gary name. Gruberson. Yeah. I think with him and especially Phoebe and Podcast, I love that this was just like a celebration of cool weirdos. Mm. Like these characters are so cool because they are just unapologetically themselves. And I think having a hero who's a girl who's really nerdy, who's into science, and that is celebrated. And Mr. Gruberson celebrates that about her. There's, there's never an element where it's like, oh, you're a nerd. Oh, you're boring. Oh, you're a weirdo. It's like, yeah, she's a nerdy weirdo, and that's why she's great. You know who else is unapologetically himself? Muncher. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to, to talk, talk about Muncher. I just wanted to talk about the... We haven't really talked about the action that much, and there isn't actually that much action in it, which I guess befits a Ghostbusters film because they're never really action films. But um, mm. I was really impressed by the, the Ecto-1 sequence where they're chasing Muncher. And um, there's a really lovely, one of my favorite shots in the film is actually during that car chase where uh, the fire hydrant sprays water onto the side of the car and it like washes all the mud off the um, No Ghost logo. And I just thought that was such a lovely little, in the middle of like nice little beat that it's kind of like, yeah, it's now like a ghost busting machine Mm. again. Um, But I just loved what they did with the little remote control car. uh, but what, what do you call that ghost catcher kind of boat, ghost trap, trap thing. yeah i just thought it was really really inventive i would have enjoyed more more action like that but i thought that was a real highlight of the film for me anyway yeah i agree because ecto-1 is something that had previously just been a vessel to get the ghostbusters from point a to point b and it has it's one of the most iconic cars in movie history it's got one of the most iconic sirens in movie history and yet it doesn't really do anything uh, that doesn't mean that you have to do something it's not the fucking batmobile but you know Hey ho! Uh, this was you know, this was this was good. It gave Ector one agency, and I think that's important. <laughs> wow! I did think there was maybe a little bit too much damage in that scene. I would have liked maybe like ten percent less damage because I feel like a family who are already stony broke mm-hmm. and whose kids just had a what appears to be a joy ride through town, causing what appears to be thousands of at least dollars worth of damage for no obvious reason there would be a little bit more panic um as a result and and it was quite muted so yeah. that was my biggest issue with that scene and again i know i'm being ridiculous i i do for the record feel the same way about the ghostbusters and the hotel in the first film 
That was one. Uh, that was one element missing from this film, actually. That is that is quite fundamental to the previous Ghostbusters films, which is that it's always people on their asses, like trying to mm. stop them doing things and trying to catch them and shut them down. And you know, the first two films, maybe that's a New York thing, but it's all the authority figures who are who are in their way. Yeah. And that that isn't yeah. there in this film. I guess you don't need it, but um, I was kind of expecting more of that. There's a sense, perhaps, of. Again, as I say, the the Bucking Woodbine character, the sheriff, perhaps being that obstacle, uh, perhaps he didn't quite make the cut. Uh, I, I, there's a feeling that certain things were excised from this movie, but uh, but yeah, once again, there was a lot of stuff I liked about it. It's interesting that the 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 way that Brightman parcels out the information, the reveal in the movie that Phoebe's grandfather was Egon doesn't come for about an hour. But we know, like we, the audience, know that it's Egon, and yet it's you know you get you get little things you get you get a, you know you obviously you see their Ghostbusters uniforms at one point, but Trevor finds Ecto One, and you know there's a proton pack, and there's all these little clues, and I thought that was interesting, given that we know we know, and surely, but the, the idea is that they don't know that that they don't know their dad, their granddad was a famous Ghostbuster. There, there, there's your debts paid off right there. My grandfather was a Ghostbuster. I'm going to write a book about that. Mm. But ultimately, that doesn't really mean anything to them either, because they don't really know about this legacy of ghosts and and ghost busting. Mm. Um, I, I think that's another thing that, like, uh, it's harder because you don't want to pick this movie apart. But I think there are things like that where it just doesn't. Its own sense of internal logic doesn't quite hang together. Yeah, I'm I'm very wary of of falling down that that particular um, rabbit hole myself, and uh, so I'm going to try not to. However, I will say this: I will ask you this. And uh, Annie Potts hmm. shows up as Janine. The obvious thing to do from a storytelling point of view would be to have her be Callie's mum, but she's not. No. And then she just fucks off. <laughs> so. well, was was that another nod to Ghostbusters 2, where she's with someone else? Who's she with in Ghostbusters 2? Rick Moranis? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lewis Tully. Okay. Oh, that would have been another Tully for Jason Ryman, wouldn't it? Yeah. Maybe Tully is... <laughs> yeah. There's a young adult. And uh, did you know that there's also uh, some other references to his movies? But, there's, but yeah, there's that's lot, interesting. They're all up in the air, Chris. Hey. hey. <laughs> Thank you for smoking, Ben. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you're just smoking hot, Ben. You know it. You know it. <laughs> Look, this you film know? has men, women, and children, although we all forget about that film. <laughs> oh, God, do we have to mention that film again? <laughs> Well, oh. hey, we're all working today. Today for us is a Labor Day. Mm. You had forgotten he did that movie, didn't you? I had. <laughs> wow. Mm. Clearly not the right man for that particular job. What was the political Hugh Jackman one? The, um, uh, ooh. The front runner. The front runner, the front yes. Runner. Uh, all right. I can't bring that in. This film isn't <laughs> loaded with references to Jason Reitman movies, but it is loaded with references to the first two movies. And I, I, I thought that whilst it was nice that we got Sigourney Weaver and it was nice that we got Annie Potts, I felt that there may be, I don't know, you could have worked a little bit harder to maybe integ- integrate Sigourney Weaver, Dana Barrett into the story mm-hmm. a little bit more. And Janine just raises more questions than, you know, <laughs> she answers her, t- her T-shirt, I am not Callie's mother, um, answers a lot of questions raised <laughs> by the T-shirt. 
I, I, yeah, it just felt it felt that they hadn't quite squared that circle. To use Helen's phrase from earlier on, I, I still don't know who Callie's mother is. Um, Egon doesn't strike me as a kind of guy who would even necessarily be interested in pleasures of the flesh and embarking upon relationships. So, but I think there's a story there. Presumably, we just need to look at the winners of the Nobel Prize for Biology over the past thirty <laughs> years, and one of those ladies will be uh, Callie's mum. Yeah. Can I say, though, in terms of the callbacks to the old films, the thing that really did make me laugh that is probably my favourite joke in the film is the way they deploy the who you're going to call line, which is like, it gives you that line. You want somebody to say that line in the film, but they do it in a fun, playful way when they get to make their phone call in in the jail. And it's like, who are you going to call? I thought that was brilliant. I loved that. I didn't feel like I wanted anyone to say it in the film, but (laughs) but if someone was going to say it, that was probably the best best way of it being done because it did make me smile. What I also liked the use of the score from the original movie and all those little musical stings that Elmer Bernstein came up with. I thought that that's one of my favourite movie scores and uh, it was used very, very nicely here. Um, and can we just point out as well that um, McKenna Grace sings the song over the closing yeah. credits and co-wrote it, in fact. It's called Haunted House, <laughs> written by McKenna Grace and Lily Kincaid, performed by McKenna Grace. I was looking out for this in the credits because I was like, what is this? This is a banger. Is this like Olivia Rodrigo or somebody? Mm-hmm. And no, it's McKenna Grace. Uh, I don't think it came up in the credits when um, Nick and I saw the film. So uh, they must have like just added that in the credits afterwards. But yes, I think it's a bit of a banger. Yeah. I like it. Anyone else feel like a massive underachiever now? Like she's what? I, I think six. I don't know. Something yeah. like that. Oh. Uh, she is... 15. Oh, well, that's all right 15. then. Now I feel like I'm an overachiever by comparison. <laughs> she could have uh, done yeah. the, uh, the Bond song for Spectre if she's, doing, <laughs> if she's in the market for ghost-themed uh, movie songs. Just yeah, it's, it's, it's depressing. It is depressing, quite frankly. She's too talented. Uh, two, two last things before uh, we wrap this bad boy up. Um, I wanted to point out that the man in the hardware store is not just the man in the hardware store. That is Tracy Letts. Mm. And Tracy Letts is not just uh, a tremendous actor and playwright, but he is also Carrie Coon's husband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what, he was just go. visiting the set one day and they roped him in? Uh, I think pretty much. Uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? And... Can I just say as well, going back to the idea of Gary Gruberson and Callie having wild animalistic sex as the no. uh, gatekeeper and the key master, that's going to create a lot of unrealistic expectations for the rest of their relationship, don't you think? <laughs> what is that? What you want for the next film to be? Just them like trying to reawaken Goza so that they can like kick <laughs> things back into a higher gear. They're like, this is how our relationship began. It's like David Cronenberg's Crash. That's basically what it is. Oh, God. It's like, <laughs> They're going to harder and harder extremes to try and um, get that sexual high. I think on their next date, they'll just watch Cujo. (laughs) I love the Cujo thing, because obviously that was a nice sort of reference to the terror dogs. Um, But also, I I think that's the other thing that's in the mix here. You've got the, like... T- like old Ghostbusters, but also Amblin-y stuff, but also a bit of Stephen King. The fact that this takes place in rural America, that it's big cornfields, that it's in small town America, felt like a very sort of Kingian place for this to to be happening as well. Well, no, but then it would be in Maine, so that's yeah. Clearly not. <laughs> uh, interesting enough, Jason Reitman did not intend Cujo as a reference to the Terror Talks. 
Huh. Really? Yeah. It just it worked out well. A, a dog of terror rather than a terror dog. Just thought, what's an inappropriate film for kids to watch? And <laughs> Cujo was Cujo was one of them. Um, it was interesting. So how much how, how much else in this movie was it was an unplanned accident? Uh, they didn't intend the "Who you gonna call?" line. He was just asking who they wanted to call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill Murray, uh, Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, Dan Aykroyd just happened to visit. <laughs> Look, they were the best people for the job. They auditioned. They did really well. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's take a note out of Tracy's uh, book and let's wrap up this podcast. Um, is, unless you've anything else you want to say, anything, any burning scenes, moments that you wanted to talk about that we haven't addressed. Oh, or just to good? say, I really like the bit where they use Muncher to get out of uh, prison, where they get him to get through the bars. <laughs> that was really cool and clever. Yeah. Well done, Muncher. You're a good boy. Is Muncher better than Slimer? Would you take Muncher ahead of Slimer? I just want them to team up and maybe solve crimes? <laughs> I, think they would eat, I think they would eat crimes and then slime them. <laughs> I don't think they would be. That's even better. <laughs> this movie was missing a darkly sexual scene that ended with the, with the line, he munched me. Oh. I mean, there's, oh, there's, no. there's, 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 there's troubling questions to be asked about who comes back as a human ghost and who comes back as Muncher. <laughs> like, what do you have to do wrong to come back as Muncher? Or maybe that's, an, <laughs> maybe that's a, a best case scenario. Oh, my oh. God. Oh, who God. was Muncher in a previous life? I just, oh. I, I felt like, I'll be honest, I didn't like Muncher. I felt that there was way <gasps> too much of Helen. him. I know. I was, I, was, I was bored of Muncher. Helen, take that back. You've, I, you've made I it personal. We are all Muncher stands here, Helen. One day, <laughs> one day you will see the light. At this rate, you light. won't be invited to our Muncher Club meeting. <laughs> yeah, it's MunchCon 2022. <laughs> Ooh, Chris, that sounds like it has other connotations. Chris, I've, uh, I'm not coming to that. I don't care how many invites yeah. you send. That's so why you guys didn't respond to my invitation. I, I just said, let's learned, munch. <laughs> I just learned not to in, respond to any of your invitations. It was just a picture of Tracy Letts and then, and then a little voice, a speech bubble going, let's munch. And why is it happening at two in the morning? Damn it. Damn it. Anyway, on that note, um, I will uh, wrap this up. What's, what's next? Do you think there's going to be a sequel? And uh, if so, the, the, the idea of giving the keys, the Ghostbusters to Winston, I think is, is, is nice in that, you know, Pete got the short end of the stick in the first Ghostbusters, didn't show up for ages, wasn't part of the original three, often isn't isn't used in a lot of the marketing. Uh, and so finally, it's nice to see Ernie Hudson get get his, his dues, I guess. Um, and if there is going to be a sequel going forward, it seems to me that, you know, they're, they're basically what they're doing is they're going, we're, we're maybe going to have a Ghostbusters sequel where the Ghostbusters are going to be a thing in New York, but this is a way of doing it where we don't have to rely on Bill Murray showing up yeah, all the time. So we'll have Ernie Hudson at the head of this thing. Dan Aykroyd, we're pretty sure we can, we can get in for, for a cameo every now and again, yeah. but this feels a little bit, that, that scene with, with um, Peter and Dana at the end felt a little bit like, you know what, this might be it for, for Bill Murray in terms of busting ghosts. Which I'd be fine with. I, I don't know. If they do more, I think it's nice to give Ernie more to do, having been sort of underserved in the past. But give us more Phoebe in podcasts. Like, again, if you're talking about the Star Wars sequels, they, they bring the originals characters back. They do kind of proper, good, important things with them. But the focus remains on your new characters and setting them off on their journey. And I think to, to not only kind of deny Phoebe in podcasts a chance to be part of the main 
kind of ending of this film to have a major role in that but then also then just have this as a chance to then give it back to the original Ghostbusters and not really do anything with those characters who they've set up so beautifully I think would be a real shame I yeah. When I interviewed Ivan Reitman for the 2016 film, he talked about um, there they had ideas to do Ghostbusters films set in around the world because he's like you know all these different countries have their own ghost law they don't all need to be happening in America or New York so that would be really cool if if you introduce these new Ghostbusters um, Phoebe and podcast their bases in New York but like Winston and and Ray are sending them out on missions around the world to investigate things and go on a spooky adventures in like Japan or wherever. I think that could be a really cool franchise. Yeah. I want to see that because I don't want them just to go back to New York and just be driving around New York. That could be cool. The only thing would be keeping the kind of blue collar aspect and making sure it doesn't get too shiny. You know, you want to have a little bit of where's the money coming from? How are we doing this? Uh, how are we figuring all this out? And I think that that's the, the only slight problem with the, the Ernie Hudson handover at the end is like he's super rich now. And, you know, it was always conceived as a sort of blue collar gang of people fighting ghosts so I, I, that's my only worry the answer is bring back Walter Peck to, <laughs> peck, to peck it up just get in there get in their faces try and shut it down they're off on adventures elsewhere and Winston is uh, having to battle Walter Peck I would watch that Walter Peck coming back to the Ghostbusters world cats and dogs living together mass hysteria that's what we might have to look forward to in any future Ghostbusters movie uh, yeah I'm excited about that uh, and I will very very quickly mention that I was at first taken aback by the last shot of this movie being that long long shot that wide shot of the Ecto-1 crossing into New York and then the credits come up and I thought that's a strange way to finish your movie and then I, I, I thought back and I was like well that's kind of how these things end the first Ghostbusters just kind of ends it has the credits come up over that bit where they're celebrating outside Spook Central and you have all this footage of them kind of palling around gadding around joshing around with uh, with everybody outside and it just kind of finishes so I quite like that that this continues that tradition and I like this film and I like the fact that this film continued a lot of traditions and um and even though it can be and has been, as we have just shown, picked apart a little bit in terms of its internal logic and its internal structure, uh, I still had a good time with it. So I would be happy if we had more films in this universe from then, from this point on. But anyway, on that note, that is it. It is four minutes past one. It is time for lunch. Are you going to munch? Munch bunchers. Oh, no. No? What is happening? I don't like it. Who am I going to munch? Lunch. <laughs> Let's munch. I don't think it's going to catch on, Chris. Mm-mm. That is it for this Ghostbusters Afterlife spoiler special. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, of course, to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We're back at Squadcast today. Uh, we're not in the studio today. Uh, so it is goodbye from Muncher Fan Club president, although he seems strangely reluctant to turn up to my meetings, Ben Travis. I will not be at your meetings. I will be at my own Muncher fan club <laughs> meetings, which will just be talking about Muncher from Ghostbusters Afterlife and maybe in extended Ghostbusters lore. I, I imagine there's a Muncher comic on the way or something like that. Oh, oh yeah. I'm working on it right now. Um, oh, no. So, Ben, I'll see you next year at Munchapalooza. It's going to happen. Uh, sure, it is Chris. going to happen. Yeah, it is good. It is that. goodbye from. <laughs> it's goodbye from hell on earth. Hell on earth. H E L on earth. Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo! Says being a ghost. <laughs> it is goodbye from Figo, Scourge of Carpathia, Sorrow of Moldavia. Is there more to that, Nick Desemnian? There is, but uh, I, we haven't got time for it. We 
don't have time for it. And, and I, I have to get busy continuing my letter writing campaign to get another Ghostbusters film made that's all about Vigo. <laughs> the world wants it and needs it. Yeah, not Mortensen, the other fella. And it is goodbye from me. There is no Chris, only Sewell. Oh, and by the way, that's something that took me out of the movie. You know when Dana is possessed in the first movie and um, when she speaks, you know, yeah, she does that thing of, there is no Dana, only Sewell. But she also speaks in her own voice for quite a lot of it. And the minute that Carrie Coon is possessed, it's like someone's off at the after effects and someone's someone's messing around with with the with pro tools and autotune and all that sort of stuff so took me out the movie so therefore this movie is now one star in retrospect <laughs> uh anyway, thanks for listening uh thank you for supporting the spoiler specials the next one is going to be i think the epic edgar wright christy wilson karen's last night in soho interview uh so keep peel for that and of course our weekly hawkeye spoiler specials as well see you next time i'm off to munch and much for Britain. Bye-bye.